0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay. Kwasnetsker is the co-founder and editor of the international <coughs> Buddhist journal, Finding Minds. He has practiced with meditation for 30 years. He is the author of Buddhist Nature, Evolution as a Guide to Enlightenment, Crazy Wisdom Around through the philosophy of East and West, and the Big Bang, the Buddha, and the Baby Boom. In addition to leading a regular sitting group in Berkeley, he teaches classes in meditation and philosophy at Spirit Rock and at other locations around the country. Welcome,
1: Thank you. It's nice to share this morning with you. I've uh, been here a couple times before. This is my third visit, and the group has grown quite, uh, quite a bit, I think. Um, I want to start. By reading a bit of doggerel that I wrote for my journal. Uh, it's called Why I Meditate, and uh, it was inspired by a poem by Allen Ginsberg of the same name. Why I Meditate. I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there are so many other things to do I meditate because when I was young it was all the rage I meditate because Siddhartha Gautama Bodhidharma Marco Polo the British Raj Carl Jung Alan Watts Allen Ginsberg Alfred E Newman et al (laughs) (laughs) I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain but it didn't come with an instruction manual I meditate because I have all the information I need I meditate because the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying. Mm -hmm. I meditate because I want to touch deep time, where the history of humanity can be seen as just an evolutionary adjustment period. I meditate because life is too short and sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need an occasional break. (laughs) I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi does, or Walt Whitman, or Mary Oliver. I meditate because now I know that enlightenment doesn't exist, so I can relax. I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there are too many advertisements in my head, and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. I meditate because I want to remember that I'm perfectly human. I meditate because I love Jack Kerouac, I meditate sometimes because my heart is breaking. I meditate sometimes so that my heart will break. I meditate because a Vedanta Hindu master once told me that in Hindi my name Niskar means non doer. I meditate because I'm growing old and want to become more comfortable with emptiness. I meditate because Robert Thurman called it an evolutionary sport, and I want to be on the home team. I meditate because I'm composed of a hundred trillion cells and from time to time I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. I meditate because it's such a great relief to spend time ignoring myself. I meditate because my country spends more money on weapons than all other nations in the world combined. If I had more courage, I'd probably set myself on fire. I meditate because I want to discover the fifth Brahma Vihara, the divine abode of awe, and then I'll go down in history as a great spiritual adept. I meditate because I'm building myself a bigger and better perspective, and occasionally I need to add a new window. Why I meditate? Just a few of the reasons. There are others. So... Uh, this morning I'm going to talk about uh, your mind uh, and my mind, our mind, because it is really a, a collective thing that we share, uh particular organ, brain, nervous system at a particular moment in evolution. We share a particular <coughs> culture that determines uh, a lot about our mind. So it really is a, a collective discussion about this thing that creates our reality, or uh, the thing we perceive as our reality. I think the most uh, significant shift in my life that has come out of my meditation practice over the years has been my relationship to my own mind. Uh, We're still friends, but we're not quite so codependent as we used to be. (laughs) I'll never, I'll never forget my first meditation retreat where I, re- I, I understood two very important things about my mind. And, and this happens to almost anyone who goes on any, any kind of retreat for any length of time. Two very significant revelations actually. Mm-hmm. The first one was the discovery of mindfulness itself. Uh, I, I was 27 or 28 years old when I first started meditating. I had a good degree from an American university, I had done some therapy, I had done some Freudian Gestalt therapy, but nobody in my culture had ever told me that you could actually develop this ability to step out of your own drama and simply observe it, this, this quality that we call mindfulness, that has been called mindfulness, uh, which is a huge uh, discovery. It's, it's a huge discovery, it's like a double consciousness. That you, are, you can be aware of your own mind and your own awareness. That you can actually track yourself from uh, what Christians sometimes call the higher self or uh, the witness. Uh, the second revelation, though, and that was, the one that really was shocking to me, was that I'm not in control of my mind. The instructions were simple, sit there. Just pay attention to your breath. Don't consciously or uh, willfully do anything else. So, I start paying attention to my breath and voila, my mind continues to think and make plans and have regrets and fantasies without consulting me. I mean, it just (laughs) went on. Um, My first meditation retreat, I had just come from being a news director at a rock and roll radio station. In San Francisco. And that may have something to do with the fact that that first retreat, the first couple retreats that I did, my mind insisted on singing to me during meditation. (laughs) And not New Age meditation music. It was, you know, (laughs) pop songs with good hooks. Uh, And they would come into my head randomly. Uh, I don't know, something would trigger them, some cue and they would repeat over and over. I thought I was going crazy. I could not turn them off. Uh, sometimes uh, a song would pop into my head that was on an album side that I was familiar with. My mind would track through the album side, sometimes flip it over and play the other side. It was insidious, really. Um, a number of people I know, have I've uh, have, have talked to about this, say they have this, have had this phenomenon which I call a jukebox karma. You know, it's like you listen over the years and it gets imprinted. Especially, you know, in combination with drugs, the music, you know,
2: <laughs> goes
1: in deep. Uh, but this was a this was a real revelation. I mean, before I began meditating, I was completely lost in the contents of my mind. Uh, And still now when I go to a retreat or almost any time that I sit down to to meditate, I am suddenly reminded that I have been totally lost in my own drama without any sense of awareness of it, uh, just rolling in it, completely uh, unconscious, you might say, lacking any consciousness of it. This is a Tibetan sage, uh, Tulku Ergen, 20th century. The stream of thoughts surges through the mind of an ordinary person, often called dark diffusion. In this state, there is no knowledge whatsoever about who's thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness, and the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. This is the case for most people, and this is the thing that meditation is uh, is designed to cure. Really, is to break through that mesmerizing stream of, of, of our own uh, our own our own mind, our own uh, the products of our own mind. Of course, our civilization has come to uh, emphasize thinking. You know, that's what we get graded on in school. Um, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Uh, Showing how much we had become identified with the thinking mind. Uh, I think Descartes should have said, I think, therefore I think I am. (laughs) You know, I
2: mean, <laughs> and
1: actually what he should have said is I breathe therefore I am because you know we can think uh, we can breathe without thinking but we can't think without breathing I think it's a, uh, somewhat ironic that I spent the first half of my life learning how to think and now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thinking what was I thinking? <laughs> now, I don't want to give the impression that thoughts are bad. Thoughts are, I mean, it's a, our genius. Our genius as a species. We make up these complex symbols and uh, that we, we agree upon and they can be expressed in, you know, sounds. But And we use this, this ability to pass information back and forth and directions and discoveries and then pass them on to n- the next generation. I mean, it's... A brilliant adaptive system. But um, as a species, we've grown to sort of overemphasize or over romanticize it. We've, we've, we've grown to believe that our thinking makes us superior to the rest of creation. This is Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. And uh, Stephen Jay Gould said, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> what they are saying is that the mind, the thinking mind, is basically an adaptive tool. It's, it's, it's an evolutionary design that, that helps this particular species read the environment at a distance, uh, and in, in fact, in time. You know, remember, plan ahead. A brilliant ad- adaptation, uh, no doubt, but nonetheless an adaptation. Uh, and that is actually how the Buddha saw it. The Buddha, if you look at the Buddhist texts, uh, the thinking mind is the sixth sense, no more or less important than sight, which also allows us to read the environment at a distance. It is very liberating to uh begin to understand thinking as a biological function and as an adaptive function. It helps to both demystify and depersonalize our our thinking mind which gets us causes us so much suffering because we think of it as so individual as so much ours as so much self created when really it uh it's created by evolution. Uh, you know, 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, people were sitting around, you know, guys were probably thinking, what color should I paint my spear? And who's going on the hunt tomorrow? And uh, is anybody watching the fire? You know, now we think about our 501K and the grocery list and the, you know. But it's basically the same stuff. It's survival stuff. In fact, sometimes... Very interesting little experiment. Take a session of your meditation and uh, see how many of your thoughts can be somehow placed in the under the category of survival. Sex, money, shelter, um, place in the pecking order. I mean, it's all there. It's all there. I have found it Uh, very interesting and useful and liberating as a as a follower of this path as a as a Buddhist practitioner to understand what science and uh, in particular cognitive science neuroscience evolutionary science what they are saying about our brain and how it works and uh, what they're discovering it is radical and it totally supports the Buddha's vision of how things are in the world. You know, we're looking at uh, our minds with mindfulness, sometimes. Uh, the scientists are looking at our brains with these PET scans and CAT scans and MRIs and squids, the the, the quantum... Uh, Interference device, I forget what it is, the superconducting quantum interference device. Anyway, they're really quite shocked at what they're finding. First of all, um, they're finding that most of our mental processes go on uh, beneath our conscious awareness on what neuroscientist Daniel Dennett called the subpersonal level. In other words, most of our interpretations of the world and even uh, the motivations and the the carrying out of our behaviors are often um, done uh, without our taking part in them. They 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 go on beneath our awareness, and consciousness comes in late in the game. Um, you know, the psychologists were telling that, us that for about a, a century. You know that that really there were all these these forces in the subconscious that were really ruling our lives and uh, but now, now the, the the cognitive scientists and the more materialist scientists are are really showing that that's the case um, based on some elaborate experiments here a, a now very famous experiment by a cognitive scientist named Benjamin Libet <coughs> shows that the brain makes decisions for us he wired subjects to monitors uh, galvanized skin response and brain pictures and and he told the the subjects to push a button whenever they felt like it just randomly push a button and he discovered that the brain goes into a kind of readiness preparation the brain starts doing this a half a second before the per- the subject becomes conscious of making the decision to do it in other words the brain starts the consciousness comes in later says I'm doing this when actually it was the brain that was doing it. The brain is the reason that the, you know the brain can do this and, and fool us into thinking we're doing it. The brain is a complete wonder. It processes an estimated 11 million bits of information a second. All the information coming from inside of your body, uh, outside world, it's a phenomenal uh, organ. And the complexity is quite astounding. Uh, and this is really interesting that um, the brain is made up of all these different little compartments that do the processing. These little uh, little groups of cells, little brain regions. Uh, for instance, loud sounds and quiet sounds are handled in different subsectors of the auditory center of the brain. The verbal areas of the brain are so specialized, nouns and verbs get processed by different groups of cells. Um, In the visual cortex, one group of cells gets activated when you see a face, and another group gets activated when you see a face looking at you. And what the scientists say is that all these little brain regions are impersonal, all do their jobs, they receive these electrical and chemical signals, and then based on the strength and, uh, you know, um, the coding, they, they send these signals on to where they're supposed to go. Um, as one scientist says, these different agencies of the brain have no more self or soul than your liver. So all these little worker parts of the brain don't know who they're working for, and they don't know what the outcome is supposed to be they just do their jobs a kind of example someone's coming towards you on the on the sidewalk you're walking down the street someone's coming towards you streams of photons go into your hit your retina your eye get turned into electrical signals which go to the visual cortex and the brain is all parts of the brain are on a constant resonating communication with each other so immediately the visual cortex, the signals are sent to the uh, memory center. As the image is being assembled, you know, is this familiar? Does it look like somebody we know? Maybe not. Go to the emotional the emotional center, you know, the limbic system. You know, do we like this? Is this going to be good? You know, it goes to um, the behavioral center where, you know, get ready for, for some kind of movement here. Uh, all these centers of the brain are, are notified, uh, all this information is coordinated with all the other kinds of information that's coming in, like your intention, how strong was your intention to walk down the street and get to where you're going without being interrupted, etc. In the end, whether you wave to this person or cross the street to miss them, is nothing more than a, a brain-jerk reaction, is what I call it. A brain-jerk <laughs> reaction. Based on your past experience, your past conditioning, and evolutionary demands, something will happen within you and without you. <coughs> uh, cognitive science, scientist Marvin Minsky Just as we can walk without thinking, we can also think without thinking. As meditators, uh, I don't know how how much experience you've had, but you start to get to understand this. You really start to see it. You start to see both how uh, the mind moves with desire or aversion, and and how, uh, how the thinking comes, you know, these clusters of thoughts, not only independent of your will, but against your will. And uh, how this whole flow of mind just continually pours through you uh, based on your own early conditioning, your psychology, and your biology, the instincts that that live in you. Um, Now, the scientists say that most Of the stuff that flows through our mind has to do with survival as I was talking about and here's how a neurologist named Melvin Connor expresses some of the recent studies of the brain quote the motivational portions of the brain particularly the hypothalamus have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction Experiments on the lateral hypothalamus suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. (laughs) I want. that's, That's the setting of our brain. Now, you might think that that's depressing news, it is a little, but the fact that we can know it is really the beginning of our freedom and when you sit in meditation and you see the mind moving constantly in this state of dissatisfaction you begin to understand it, you begin to break your identification with it. This is not I, me, mine, this is the nature of you know, it's evolution's brain. It's doing its thing, and you can learn to actually calm it, be okay with it, and find what the Buddha called a different kind of happiness. The, uh, the, the setting in the brain, the Buddha recognized it, and what well, he called, he called the, these instincts, uh, underlying tendencies... But he made it the basis of his second and third noble truth. The second noble truth being that the reason that we suffer so much is desire. Meaning this desire and aversion, this constant dissatisfaction in our minds. And the third noble truth, which is that we can work with it. We can understand it and work with it. That... um, that this desire and aversion that that is in there, that our our suffering comes not because we haven't fulfilled our latest desire, our suffering comes because of the endless wheel of desire that goes around. You know, it's like life is a little like Chinese food. You know? It's great, but, you know, 15 minutes later you're hungry again. It's... uh, Understanding that is, is a, I think, is really a revolution. And I think that the Dharma meditation is a revolution in consciousness. And that and, and we're all really in on the early stages of it. I mean, 2,500 years ago, in biological time, as a blink of an eye, humans are just waking up to their own condition. I mean when you think about it, Freud and Darwin and 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 Jung and Einstein and they're our contemporaries. We're really this is a whole new ball game that we're involved in. Um, one of one of the most interesting thing that things that happened in my meditation practice over the years is when I started dropping down from the thinking thinking mind and into my body and feeling that there was almost always some kind of emotion accompanying the, thought, the thinking, especially the re- repetitive clusters of thoughts and the insistent thinking when I would get lost. If I would come and check my body, I would realize that there was some mood that had uh, invaded or had, had taken me over. and. Coming into the body and actually feeling that the, there's an engine of the, think, the, the thinking mind is run by the engine of the limbic system. You know that emotions have been around for a uh, hundred million years. Thinking has only been around for you know a few hundred thousand, maybe at the most. Um, you know we're just learning how to think, but the, the limbic system, the, the emotional system, is is very heavily wired and the more we come um, i've found the more you can come in and experience the engine the emotional engine of your thinking the more liberating it is you don't we we can get very identified as an individual with the thinking brain but with the emotions fear sadness anxiety all that stuff is it's generic There's a way in which when you start to feel your life being lived on that level, you you gain what I call evolutionary intelligence. Uh, You become more identified with your species self than you do with your individual, individual drama. Evolution. Evolution is such a good way to understand the mind. Uh, probably the one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century and not heralded nearly enough uh, in the 60s a uh, dr. Paul mm-hmm. McLean at NIMH made a, was studying the evolution of the brain and discovered that we don't have a brain we have three brains and that they develop in each of us in the womb in the same order that they developed in nature we get the brain stem first the reptilian brain we get, and over that grows the limbic system, the mammalian brain, and then over that eventually grows the new human brain or the neo-mammalian brain. And McLean also discovered that one brain doesn't override the other brains. In fact, they're very intimately uh, connected. Um, and in fact, the the reptilian and mammalian brains are really fully engaged, I mean, they, they work We only use 30% maybe of our new human brain, at least the capacity. And there's some speculation that we use the new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other people. (laughs) Very, very likely possibility. And and, and it's funny because they've done done studies now with split brain uh, people with split split brain injuries and uh, they found that the left hemisphere weaves everything that we do into the story that we tell about ourselves. I mean, we want to think of ourselves as an integrated being and have meaning and stuff. And the left hemisphere is continually weaving everything that we do into this, into this narrative. But as to whether uh, it, it makes any sense outside of our own uh, brain is, is another question. Okay, you know, you have to bow to your, you know, your reptilian, your lower brains, your reptilian brain. you got to bow because it's taking care of your body temperature, uh, your hunger, your sex drive, your uh, metabolism, the whole. And if you had to consciously do that, you wouldn't have any time to think. <laughs> so, what what the upshot is, well, so, you know... Who makes the decisions in your life, huh? What's becoming clear is that you are not necessary. (laughs) And in fact, you can't be found. Uh, There was a Time magazine cover story in the summer of 1995. It was called In Search of the Mind. Um, I'm sure many people were shocked to realize that the mind was lost and even more shocked to realize that the scientists couldn't find it. <laughs> I, I thought this article was so interesting. The last paragraph I, I cut it out and, and I, I've been reading it ever since to people. I, I love it. This is a time, the, the ending of this cover story. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, it seems that consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self. Some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. This is in Time magazine. <laughs> you know, I wasn't why wasn't there a nationwide panic of some? The <laughs> self does not exist, and the scientists have discovered and you know <laughs> Turns out the brain is 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 a self-organizing system, and it uh, you don't need it doesn't need you, you know. Yes. Now my my uh, I was wondering whether the scientists who were now beginning to understand the processes of the human brain would be feeling some degree of self-liberation themselves, you know, to to see this. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> Uh, for a few years ago, uh, I interviewed, uh, for The Inquiring Mind, I interviewed a renowned, very renowned cognitive scientist and Tibetan Buddhist, the late Francisco Varela. Uh, he said he didn't think many scientists uh, got it. He was a Tibetan Buddhist and, you know, he, he got it. He he told me, many cognitive scientists close the door of the lab after studying all day about the selflessness of the brain and go right back to their normal self-absorbed life. He said the best science can do is give a stamp of validity to the notion of selflessness. And his conclusion, you can have an intellectual understanding of anatta, anatta being the Buddhist Pali word for, for selflessness. You can have an intellectual understanding of anatta while the emotional root that weaves that understanding into your life remains absent. And that's really what we're doing uh, partly in meditation and, and especially in uh, more advanced uh, practices uh, working with this idea of no self. Uh, to, and it's not seeing just seeing through the boundaries of self—it's seeing that we are much more than this individual drama, and in fact that we are we are much bigger selves than we think we we think we are. That we are actually—I like to put it where our individual human life is first and foremost life, with all the constraints and glories that all life forms have. I mean. I think that, you know, when you come and sit down and meditate, I always like to, you know, you start, maybe you start with the breath. The breath is not just an object for you to concentrate on. It's a sign of life. And considering that you're going to be, you were dead for a long time before you were alive, and you're probably going to be dead for a long time after you die, that this is a very special, it's very special to, to feel and let that, let the fact of life reverberate in you. It can bring such a sense of delight and, and wonder. I mean, the mystery is right here. The the mystery that nobody understands is right here, as close as your breath. Um, uh, we are first and foremost... The individual human life is first and foremost life. Secondly, it is human you know, and and only thirdly and narrowly is it individual. You know we share ninety-nine point nine 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 thirteen nines percent of our DNA with each other. The IQ and the personality, and it's all just a thin coat of paint over the basic design. Anyway, in meditation I we, we can begin to understand and weave. Our understanding into into the emotional root of our lives and and really really uh, learn to regard our individual drama with less pathos and less striving and less fear and less anxiety Uh, I know of no other way to do it than this this process of meditation I, I have no I mean you know there's some pills you can take to but they don't heighten your your awareness they you know they, they block out parts of it um, anyway I will just uh, we have time for some questions and stuff so let me just end with this little uh, the disciple coming to Bodhidharma, the great Bodhidharma who brought Buddhism from India to China. Uh, the disciple comes and says, please help me quiet my mind. Bodhidharma says, okay, bring me your mind and I'll quiet it. <laughs> and after a moment, the disciple says, but I can't find my mind. And there, and Bodhidharma says, there, I've quieted for, it for you. <laughs> so uh, we have time for some questions. And then I have one more poem I can end with here.
3: This is um, sort of a far field question, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little about how your Buddhist practice has affected your
4: um, writing or your process as a writer. Um,
1: I find that when I I'm on retreat is the most fertile time in my in my uh, sort of creative life, and you know, it's it's sort of like it does what what drugs used to do. It sort of loosens the habitual connections in the mind, I think, and and uh, it allows deeper deeper stuff to come through and, and, and different different connections to come through. Uh, it's always a temptation, you know, to take my computer and sit. <laughs> You know, go hide in the in the bathroom or something. But I, I I've uh, i take notes though. You know, I find it's really really powerful. In fact, I'm leading a uh, co-leading with a number with Mayumi Oda and uh, and uh, Anna Douglas uh, creativity retreat at Spirit Rock in September, a week, and and people bring their bring the stuff that they're working on. It's kind of like a half and half and we sit in the morning and then the afternoon people go off and paint or write or last year we had a trombonist in the woods. (laughs) 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 Yeah.
2: uh,
5: I'm just reading John Zabitzen, I think I have it right, Uh, coming to our senses and I, I find it absolutely brilliant just as I enjoyed your talk very much. Uh, it's not my idea, it's in his book that we're ready, many of us are ready to take a quantum leap into something that might be described as neuroscience dharma. As wonderful as all my teachers have been all of these decades, well, I hate to say that I've outgrown them because that isn't true, I've loved them so much. Yes. But uh, it's coming together for the first time, in my opinion, in a comprehensible Way absolutely, we can read it, and yeah, John's Abbott Zen just makes it so clear, right? I'm just in tears thinking about it, as a matter of fact. Uh, because, uh, because there it is, now, I don't yeah. know exactly where to take it, so I guess my question is who's doing retreats in this area? Have we outgrown like Omega Institute and in Esalen? Uh, is there a website? It, it still looks like sort of an unconnected conglomerate of people who have bits and pieces of it all
1: but it has not yet become a magnificent work of cosmic art right right well i'll i'll attempt to answer your your questions by saying that first of all you know this is brand new uh the last 25 30 years of buddhism coming to the west it's just a brand new thing and um that what is really exciting to me, and to, I think, a lot of people, uh, is the meeting of science and and Eastern wisdom traditions. Uh, I sometimes think that it's just a quirky little theory that, uh, you know, the the world was divided into the two hemispheres of the brain, and we got the left hemisphere, you know how do we understand the world or truth you go out and you take things apart and you see how they work and you know analyze everything and and for some reason the asian wisdom seems to focus on uh, it seems to be more receptive holistic thinking more uh uh not so human centered or this era centered the his- human history centered you know there are many there are vast numbers of universes, and they just keep rolling along. And anyway, uh, it's a very exciting time, I think. And the, like the Dalai Lama is holding these these conferences with with scientists, um, it's just starting to happen. And I I don't think that we give up our old. I mean, the the teachers who are teaching sort of pure dharma without the overlay of any kind of science. I mean. That has its place and its, uh, you know, impact as well. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know a lot of teachers who are, are teaching the two things. Uh, I am.
2: <laughs>
1: you go ahead and call out um, the names.
0: I believe in the latest Tricycle magazine there's a short article on uh, emergence... Of the phenomenon of emergence and what you're talking about—you didn't use the word emergence, but uh, this—the con- the notion that consciousness is an emergent phenomenon. Um, uh, could you comment on uh, our, this uh, concept of emergence? No,
1: I don't. I don't know much about it. I've heard. The, I've heard it talked about.
0: Well, Stephen Johnson has a book called Emergent. He's just popularized. And he talked about you know, ant colonies and how uh, an ant might be programmed if you don't have any food, you're not carrying any food, but you approach an ant who has food, you're programmed to go straight because the implication is that he's coming from a source of food. Uh-huh. If you approach another ant and it doesn't have food, you're programmed to go right. Now if you repeat these simple operations over and over and over again, like on a computer it gets you will wind up with a trail leading from the ant colony to the food as if they knew or had, you know, the concept of intelligence. When it's really just some simple programming that's repeated over and over and over again. And I thought, wow, uh, as a metaphor for this sort of complex systems working together and repeating over time, things emerge that
6: uh, you know, yeah.
0: appear to be designed. <laughs> <laughs> By who? Well, (laughs) Well, it's evolution, you know. Right. I
1: I, I now now, uh, pray to uh, the artist formerly known as God.
6: (laughs) I'm curious about something. One of the things that I know has come up in your life, and certainly is a major thread in my life, humor as a mechanism or a uh, path of separating myself from desire and Mm -hmm. aversion and and even personality and individuality and all those things because it opens up a tiny, tiny, tiny space between what I take to be reality and myself and some other possibility. But my question is as follows. I noticed that I get so much pleasure over the years, I've gotten so much pleasure out of the humor, that I'm curious about the very attachment I've got, or the very um, reward mechanism that comes about from the practice of humor. So uh,
1: I wouldn't worry about it.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I just get... You just sink into the pleasure. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, I, I think it's just a, a gift if you have it, you know, I mean, uh, what Wavy Gravy says, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's just not funny.
6: <laughs> My response to that would be that one day I was driving in Berkeley, and unfortunately I was looking to see if a friend of mine was on the corner, and I bumped the car ahead of me, and that car bumped the car ahead of him. And so when I went to engage in this process,
2: um, the person who was right in front of me was freaking out, calling his wife and all that stuff because he said, oh my God, I'm driving
6: the camp car. I know they're going to blame me, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I looked. I'd never seen or met this person before, but I did say, you know, it's totally my fault. I'll take total responsibility. Let's exchange names. And of course he gave his name. It was way too great <laughs> 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 And And um, so I kind of dedicated myself right. to keep him out of the sequence of actions. Mm-hmm. So this actually came to a... Court case, and
1: he was just out of it. He just we we never brought up his name. It was as if he worked, had not even been there. Right. And
6: it was an interesting experience. The judge would have thrown it
2: out if his name had come up. I <laughs> <laughs> but
1: I think uh, you know. Sometimes I advise when when I teach and I, I look out you know retreats and and I look out and everybody's so grim and it's sort of like I say why why don't you just. Uh, Make this mindfulness. Make it, you know, put that little smile of the boot on it. Just don't. It's, it's, it's bemusement at your own condition, at our common condition. You know, this, the, you know, life on this planet is not a great deal. You know, it's not a. You know, you didn't read the small print in the lease on life. It's a. Uh, it's not a real pretty picture. So. To keep that kind of bemused quality as you kinda of struggle with yourself and try to find some sanity and some center, it's really useful to, to have a sense of humor. Yeah.
4: Did I hear you make a comment saying you now pay to the to the artist formerly known as God? Yeah. Were you we being a comic or is that true? Because in all of this, I, I had a body work teacher once who said, you know, it helps it to think of the brain as in the body and the body is in the mind. And that the mind is just this phenomenal sphere, dimension of mystery that we, we don't have a clue really about how. You can read the mind of someone you don't know walking on the other side of the street. Um, there's capacities for communication. And, and then create a process. How it, it, I don't experience the mind as impersonal. You know, if I'm working on a project and I go to sleep with questions in the morning... The contents
1: of the sleep. mind are not impersonal, I would uh, say. But the mind is impersonal. Do you have to arouse uh, awareness? Or is it always here?
4: Um, that's how I
1: look for it. It's there. It's always there, right? No matter what the contents may be, yours in particular. And and in fact, that, that's actually another step that that I didn't take this morning. But you know, as the mind quiets in meditation, you begin to see more and more into that quality of pure awareness.
6: Right.
1: That where there's not any content, there's just this, w- which is. A, a total mystery they, I mean as, as I read the scientists don't know what consciousness is the mystics basically just bow down to it and say you know this magical thing that knows of everything and everything oh, yeah. appears in it and it no, I mean it's it's a cause for for sort of deep reverence mm-hmm. uh, I, I would say but I don't think that it has any personal qualities <laughs> it is universal the, we share the universal mind Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to think of it that way.
4: So are you saying that humor is a frontal lobe function?
1: Well.
6: <laughs> <laughs> it seems
4: very personal and very mental. I, I don't I need don't to yeah, get yeah comment on this. But I think um, scientists have missed so much. I once asked an astronomer at a college reunion, and they were going to study the cosmos with um, with red... Spectrum light, and they were finding a ton more out there than they'd ever seen before. Yeah. And I asked them, "Have they been able
1: to incorporate um, the, the images of the Hubble Telescope?" Because when I went to school, there was just the Milky Way. And he
4: said, <clears throat> Absolutely not. Yeah, of course not. It's, yeah. It's too
1: big. It's so <laughs> amazing. It brings to a halt. I'll never forget reading. It, it was mid '90s. You know, they're sending the pictures from yeah, the Hubble right. Telescope, and there was an article in the Chronicle, like on this page six or something. You know. Uh, Hubble telescope takes nickel sized picture of the sky, finds 20 million new galaxies.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, why did
1: all of humanity should have fallen to their knees? <laughs> <laughs> not solar systems, not, you know, I mean, galaxies. Just, it's just, you know, and then, of course, we're still caught in this kind of, you know, human centered, uh, Idea of creation, you know that it's all here for us. Uh, everything revolves around us. Um, there, there is reason to think that maybe uh, the time has come for a, a bit of desentimentalizing of the human, the human history. Don't get mad.
3: <laughs>
1: I think we could use it. I think we could use it.
3: I wonder if what Jim was uh, thinking, I think when he said it, is that I think um, there's some of us who have maybe the romantic belief that uh, science can work all it wants to, but it's not going to give the ultimate, you know, answer information about um, existence. I don't know whether Mm -hmm. that's recorded or not, but you know, you know, I just comment that on Jim. my own um, thing that I was thinking after your talk was um, how much more locked into the phenomenal observation and belief of it. I mean, I keep thinking that I'm getting away from that, but then I was just looking around at everybody, and everybody seems different to me, and that's so hard to break. You know, I mean, you look different than the man next to you. You know, and so you know. I don't know whether I'm programmed or what, but, you know, what I discern are differences, and that seems to be the important thing to my survival. And so, you know, you put that on a cultural level and you see the chaos that, you know, erupts from that. And I'm just saying that um, your talk is very provocative in that, you know, I just really have to be humble, you know, in my thinking that, I've gotten
1: far away from that. Because, mm-hmm. uh-huh. You know, I'm just so I was just instantly reminded about it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, interesting. I mean, we are unique, and we are each of us, you know. But we, we, we. I think we tend uh, to over stress our differences in some uh, in some sort of existential way. I mean, we don't really see how. Completely the same we are, um, but I think what, what if, of the Dharma, and I think of of this movement. The the messages that I have I get from it are number one that we're, that you're not your fault. That's my my main message. <laughs> that we are built out of all the life that came before us, and the more. And the more we begin to integrate, I mean, it's sort of like evolution is something that almost all of us believe in, but we have not really integrated the information and and made it uh, alive in us, which I think is hugely profound, could be a hugely profound shift in, in our consciousness. And out of that understanding comes compassion and understanding that, you know, We're all just basically doing the best we can, given what we're given. So let me just finish with a poem, all right? Uh, Rumi, The Dream That Must Be Interpreted. This place is a dream. Only a sleeper considers it real. Then death comes like dawn. You wake up laughing at what you thought was your grief. And this groggy time we live in, this is what it's like. A man goes to sleep in the town where he's always lived, and he dreams he's living in another town. In the dream, he doesn't remember the town he's sleeping in his bed in. He believes the reality of the dream town. The world is that kind of sleep. The dust of many crumbled cities settles over us like a forgetful doze. But we are older than those cities. We began as a mineral. We emerged into plant life and into the animal state and then into being human and always we have forgotten our former states, except maybe in early spring when we slightly recall being green again. Humankind is being led along an evolving course through this migration of intelligences and though we seem to be sleeping, there is an inner wakefulness that directs the dream and that will eventually startle us back to the truth of who we are. The migration of intelligences, an inner wakefulness that directs the dream. Thank you all. It was a delight to share this morning with you, and i uh, see you on the path somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have announcements, and then you can us the in. if there
0: any announcements of interest in Sanda. <laughs> I'm
1: in the host today, so... There's some macaroons, <laughs> Mexican wedding cookies, and in honor of the sangha, flaming red grapes. <laughs> 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 if you have tea, please wash your cups.
6: Uh, and I will also be coming around with a Donna Bowl. You asked
1: for $5 to $8 dollars or five to $10, dollars, whatever you can afford. And if you're new, there's a sign-up sheet to receive the newsletter. You can either an email or...
0: Possible uh, now. I think that's it. Yes. Other announcements? Uh, I'm re- I newly returned to the city and I'm seeking a uh, living situation. And uh, it's occurred to me that uh, a Buddhist household or Buddhist-friendly household would be really great. and looking for a room. So, if knows of anything that would be great? Other people who are here
2: for the first time?
0: Okay, people make them feel welcome. <laughs> okay, at this point, let's stand in a circle and hold hands.
1: understanding of how we are similar, all of us wanting happiness, and how our lives intermingle with all living things, we share our merit, may it go for the liberation and ease of everything that lives.